Tonight, Transformed Week 14, and the title of tonight's message is Dangerous Affections. The first uh, 14 weeks, we had a specific purpose of what we were trying to accomplish. We were discussing how we can build a confident faith. Uh, what we have done is we've looked at the history and the reliability of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Then we've shown how through history, uh, reliability is strong. God's pre- preservation of His Word and His church is constant and growing. We, we looked at this all the way through the Reformation even to today. However, we trans- transitioned a number of weeks ago uh, to say that all of that information is wonderful. It's helpful. It's educating. But it does not produce what? Faith. Yeah, we nailed it. All right. It does not produce faith. And therefore, reliability and history and the credibility and preservation of God's word in his church, all these things cannot be the basis for our confidence, right? So we talked then about how the the self-authenticating nature of scripture is what causes us to see that the most reliable source of scripture is indeed Scripture, what the Bible says about itself. And then we transition, and the last few weeks have looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 through chapter 6 this evening, and we will finish chapter 6 next week. And we've discussed over these last few weeks where biblical faith comes from, how we grow in faith, how we persevere in faith, and last week we talked about how we put faith into action. Right, but, but think back again with me to the purpose of these first 14 weeks. As we close with this specific section of our semester tonight, we have had a desire to build a confident faith. Build a confident faith. Now to understand this more fully, I want us to examine the word confidence. This was a word that was chosen specifically... And we've waited till this evening to really define what we mean by a confident faith. Because what we, what we don't mean is that all of these things have now kind of convinced us. Reliability, all this type of stuff. Um, what the Bible says about the Bible. The logic and reason that we see in the Bible. Therefore, with reason, it makes sense that we should put our faith in it. That's not what confident means. I'm not trying to make it so that you feel greater about Christianity than Islam or Jehovah's Witnesses, etc., although you should, right? But that's not the point, and I think we can understand really what the point is when we look at the word confidence. It comes from the Latin word confides. Fides means faith. Fides means faith, and con is a prefix meaning with. So confidence literally means to be with faith. So confidence, the word, is I have faith. Or to put it more clearly, it's to have full trust in your confidence. However, people apart from Christ have confidence too. And this is what's ironic. People who don't have faith in Christ place their confidence in things. In other words, everybody has faith. It's just a matter of what is the object of your faith. You following with me? So, since everybody has faith and no one was is without it, we can see that many people's confidence is futile. It's foolish. It makes no sense. It, it, it crumbles at the very foundation. 
I'm not talking about the modern approach to the word or just believing in yourself, right? Like when you think about um, approaching a girl for the first time, JJ, right? Like have confidence, man. Walk up, you know, get the swag step, spray the, the cologne, borrow Zach's uh, pants, you know, whatever it is. And then have confidence. If you believe in yourself, girls are attracted to the confidence. I'm not, I'm not talking that kind of confidence. I'm not talking about a kid at a free throw line and the coach says, just have confidence that you can make the shot. Or I'm not talking about the, the school person who has studied really hard and then you just, you come and all these nerves are in your face. You just gotta have confidence that you're gonna do well in the test. You're gonna do well in the interview. I'm not talking this kind of confidence. This is where uh, English has kind of stolen the word, right? And culture has kind of really um, corrupted the word. Because all of those examples of confidence have a sense of selfishness and shallowness when it comes to the actual meaning. Would you agree? After all, you cannot have complete confidence and full trust in any of those things when the outcome is up in the air and dependent on too many factors. For example, JJ can do all the preparation to walk up to the girl. At the end of the day, the result is up to the girl. So JJ can have as much confidence in himself as he wants, but he can't convince the girl to like him. In fact, Zach, do you have something you would like to say? Because you're giggling pretty hard over there. <laughs> Zach's like, yeah, he, he's tried it before. I can vouch for the fact that it is not based on JJ's confidence. Let, let me give you an example, okay? Let's, let's think of an example. Let's think of, about a, of a middle school boy. And it's a basketball game, one of the last ones. He needs to make the free throw. There's no time left on the clock. He's been fouled. And he has to make the free throw in order to put the game into overtime. Otherwise, his team loses. The truth is, he has missed countless free throws through the entire semester, right? Has anyone ever known anybody in their entire career to be 100% from the free throw line? No. No. Now this boy, this middle school boy sitting on the free throw line can believe in himself all that he wants. But how he deals with his nerves, the noise, the pressure, how he releases the ball from his hands, his arc, his rotation, his aim, etc. All of these factors will dictate whether or not he makes the shot. He doesn't get to win the game or go to overtime simply by being confident in his head and believing that he can make it. The ref doesn't blow the whistle just before his final free throw and go, whoa, 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 whoa. this man is confident. Overtime, right? That doesn't happen. It's, it's not just confidence automatically gives you something. I'm not talking about this type of confidence because you can't fully trust this kind of confidence. There's too many factors. And the factors fail. Probability shows us this. Sin shows us this. Life, real experiences Show us this. There is no possible way to have full confidence in anything apart from God. You see, confidence can only truly come from a sovereign, guaranteed, all-powerful source. This is the point of Proverbs 14.26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. We talked about that word fear last week. In other words, if you take the Lord out of it, this awe of this holy, sovereign, powerful God, if there's no foundation or rock of a creator, what are you placing your confidence in? How can you have full trust? How can you be with faith, fully convinced, full trust in anything that is not unchanging? Everything else in this world changes. God is constant. He is the same. Think about that middle school boy again, right? 
Whenever an outcome is truly dependent upon us, we can have no confidence. We will still have some sense of doubt. The, the, boy, the boy would not be nervous if he was fully confident. Right? The boy would not feel the pressure of the moment in the crowd if the free throw is guaranteed. The very, so check this out. The very fact that he has doubts and feels the pressure of the moment shows that he does not have full trust. Does it make sense? They actually argue against his confidence. Doubt, fear, and worry are evidence of a lack of faith. Because confidence means to be full of faith. And this faith is based on an all-powerful, all-sovereign God. Now, that doesn't mean that worry, fear, and doubt aren't real things, or that it automatically makes you the worst human being, because what automatically makes you a sinful, wretched person is being born in this world. We live in a sinful, fallen world. Don't beat yourself up over fear, doubt, and worry, and anxiety. Join the club of every other fallen human being in this world. It should just lead us to say, okay, the reason these things exist is because I am not yet perfect, glorified. I have not been made totally perfect before God yet. I am in standing in righteousness through justification, but I will deal with these issues until I'm glorified in heaven. Think about what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, un- an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence with faith firm to the end. And that is based on Christ. In other words, if you break down what Paul just said, and you kind of make it happen chronologically, we see that an unbelieving heart is an evil heart. An unbelieving heart is an evil heart because it does not trust in God's promises or word. And it leads you to falling away from God. Paul says this is called being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's deceitfulness because it's convincing you that you can have confidence in anything other than Christ. That's why it's deceiving. Because you cannot have confidence in anything other than Christ. Then he says, but we share in Christ if we hold our confidence in Christ until the end. Holding confidence in Christ would mean to have a believing heart that is righteous before God, and we persevere and trust in God's promises and His word, and we're not deceived by sin. Paul says the same thing in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, when he says, put no confidence in the flesh. This is why, you know, God really has worked in my heart over the years with my competitive attitude and my arrogance, specifically in sports. I always want to be the best at everything. I want to have, in fact, I always tell myself, the more confident I am, the better I play. But this is such a worldly way of thinking and something as simple as sports. Because Paul says, no matter how big or little, put no confidence in the flesh. How foolish to be arrogant about anything as if I can have full trust and faith in anything but Christ. I mean, seriously, how foolish is it to put our full trust in our flesh? Do you trust everything about you? No! How foolish that the object of our faith 
would be a sinful man who is but a worm and unable, the Bible says, to please God apart from faith. In other words, because we see in Romans chapter 8 that the one who is living in the flesh, hostile to God, Romans 14, 23, it's impossible to please God apart from faith. Anything apart from faith is sin. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six. there we go. So we see that faith is the key to pleasing God, but you cannot have faith in anything else apart from Christ in a way that glorifies God. Confidence means that you have faith in Christ. This is what James refers to in James chapter 4 when he says, Come now, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, make a profit, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, here's what's amazing. If, if I were to go up to Herb and say, hey, Herb, you and Steph are getting married. So, uh, when's the wedding day? And, uh, cool, so who's going to be showing up? What color tux are you going to wear? Awesome, where are you going for your honeymoon? What's your plan the first year of your marriage? She says, oh, we're going to live in this townhouse. We're going to blah, 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 blah. We're going to do this. I'm going to you know, cut back on this spending, spray for this, and blah, blah, invest in this, and da, 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 da. The Bible says to do that, having confidence in your flesh, is arrogance and evil. Now, none of us look at our plans of preparation and think that they're arrogant or evil. In fact, there's wisdom there. There's biblical wisdom there, right? But you can go all the way to the extreme where you forget that you are but a mist. You appear for a little time and then vanish. If the Lord wills, Herb, you will do that. Because you are not the master of your fate. And your life does not belong to you. You know, that's why you say, Lord willing. I'll see you tomorrow. Lord willing, we can have dinner later on. Lord willing, the Lord allow us for Abigail and I to blah, 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 blah. Any other way of acting and thinking and preparing and confidence in our flesh is arrogance, it's boasting, and it's evil. We are dependent upon God for everything. This has been a huge thing for me lately. Everything we are dependent on God for. Everything. I'm dependent on God to be able to speak the next 30 minutes to you. Because if you take away his grace and his sovereign control, and if he lifted his hand for me for a moment, I would fall into a pillar of salt, dust, return to the ground, and be nothing. Everything in life I'm dependent on him for. I have no confidence apart from God. We have no true faith apart from God. So building a confident faith in a way that we're transformed, what we're trying to achieve this semester has to come from knowing God, from seeing His glory, abiding in His word, and resting in His promises. And here's why. You ready? Faith doesn't save us. I want you to pause and think about that. Faith doesn't save us. Now you say, well, we've been saved by grace through faith. So yes, it does save us. No, no, no. This is where we have to think about words. We have to think about theology. We have to think about the word of God because faith doesn't save us. The object of our faith saves us. Christ. Faith, we said the beginning week, is a work of God. Regeneration, bringing you from death to life. 
You don't muster up faith in the midst of doubt, worry, and fear. The answer to your anxiety isn't just muster up some kind of work of faith and do these good things. No, the answer is you need to look to the object of your faith, Christ. You need to abide in his word. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. Because if we don't place our faith and trust in Jesus, where are we placing it? And how can we have any confidence in that thing? Confidence is really associated with worldview. You know, we're going to be talking about the beginning of the new year when we begin cultivating a biblical worldview to see that all other worldviews apart from a biblical worldview is foolishness. It crumbles. There's no foundation. It absolutely is illogical, contradicts itself, and makes no sense. It's the same thing for confidence. It makes no sense to have confidence at all in anything that is not based and founded on God and His Word. So this leads us to tonight. Because we're talking about dangerous affections, right? Confidence is a matter of fidelity. Faithfulness. In other words, we are confident in God because God has confided in us His presence and His promises. We've been given a ministry by the mercy of God. And because it comes from God, we can be confident in it. However, our confidence is not based on our fidelity. It's not based on our faithfulness. But rather, God's faithfulness to us. This is why we have confidence. Not because I'm faithful to God, because He's faithful to those whom He will save. And He's faithful to Himself for those whom will not be saved. He's the one who keeps us. He's the one who preserves us. He's the one who sanctifies us. God is faithful. God has full confidence in himself. Therefore, we place our confidence in him. But the reality is that we do still sin. We do still struggle. And there are imperatives all over scripture that tell us we are to fight against sin, to fight against doubt, to fight against worry, to fight against anxiety, to fight against unbelief, just sin in general. We are to check ourselves to keep in step with the Spirit so that we do not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, God is faithful towards us, but we are prone to wander. We're prone to be adulterers. In fact, He calls us adulterers constantly in the Word. Infidelity is a huge issue. And it is what we're specifically going to deal with tonight. And here's why. Are you ready? The biggest threat against our life of faith and our ministry. The biggest danger, the biggest threat is not government. It's not culture. It's not terrorism. It's not political correctness. It's not the devil. The biggest danger of our confidence, the biggest danger of our faith, the biggest danger of our ministry is our affections. We're easy to point the blame. I do this because this happened. We're responsive, reactive, angry people. But infidelity is a matter of our own heart. Our own affections. Infidelity. And what this comes down to is truly our affections. So with this, we turn to our text tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we pick up in verse 1. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. 
What a verse. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, Paul says, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now watch this rap sheet. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making money rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We've spoken, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. So verse 12 is our key tonight. Paul tells his brothers and sisters of Corinth that they are not restricted by him and his companions, but rather they are restricted in what? Their own affections. Remember the context of Paul's letter. Paul's talking about ministry, about faith, the life of ministry, and the ministry God has called believers to. In fact, he just finished in chapter 5 saying that we are all ministers of reconciliation. We're ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. So when Paul talks about being restricted here, he means you're restricted in your ministry. You're restricted in your life of faith and the application of being a minister of reconciliation, being an ambassador for Christ. This is what you're restricted from. Now the actual Greek word that he uses here for restricted, this is awesome, means to be cramped in feelings or overcrowded, leading to no action. Overcrowded. There's too, there's, there's a, too much of a fight going on for a position. And when he uses the word affections, he means our heart, our desires, our tender affections. So to put it together, Paul says the reason that you are being ineffective in ministry, the reason you've been restricted is because your affections and desires, your heart is overcrowded. It's cramped. Therefore, it's leading to no action. What does Paul just says? Having nothing yet possessing everything. Our hearts are wide open. You widen your hearts also. Why? Because it's overcrowded. You're restricted by your affections. We've emptied ourselves so that we may be full of the Spirit of God. What did it say before? The Holy Spirit and the power of God. This is how Paul overcame all these issues that he just spoke about in the beginning of 2 Corinthians 6. Paul warns his friends about this in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 6, our text tonight. Verse 1, he says, don't receive the grace of God, what? In vain. Now, the word vain here means to be empty-handed, having nothing. This is amazing. Hollow, void of effect, fruitless. So Paul is looking at people saying, you're restricted because your heart 
is overcrowded. Paul's being accused of having nothing, yet he says, I have, I've emptied, my heart is wide open, yet I have everything. You're receiving the grace of God in vain, which means you actually have nothing, though your heart is full of affections. You see the huge play on words here? They believe they're full, Paul says you're empty. They believe Paul is empty, Paul's saying, I'm full. And they're saying, you're restricted in your letters of recommendation and the Judaizers and people are opposing your ministry because you have nothing. And he says, no, 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 no. I have everything. You're restricted in your ministry because you think you have everything and indeed you have nothing. You're producing zero fruit. Your heart is cramped with feelings. It's overcrowded. Paul's saying, look, you've seen the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 3. You've heard and known His truth in His Word. I've preached the gospel to you. You were once blind, 2 Corinthians 4. Now God has shown in your hearts. You are called to action to be an ambassador. Don't receive all of this in such a way that you are found to actually have nothing. Therefore being fruitless. That would be receiving the grace of God in vain. This would mean that your ineffectiveness is due to not emptying yourself of your misplaced confidence and your misplaced affections. Your heart is overcrowded, therefore there is no heart change. I said this two weeks ago on Sunday morning. Christianity, the reason Jesus came was not so that he could be added to our life, but that he could what? Take over our life. Following Christ, being disciples, is about dying to yourself and being given new life in Christ. To receive the grace of God in vain is to think that you are saved, to cling to truths, to cling to facts, to cling to experiences, and yet never empty yourself to be filled with Christ. And that means there was no conversion. That means you have no confidence. So you may ask, right, because dangerous affections, what do affections have to do with confidence? Why are we ending building a confident faith With affections. Well, if affections are our desires and confidence is to have full trust, then when we have misplaced affections, we certainly have misplaced confidence. The two go hand in hand. If I'm delighting in sin, I cannot truly have confidence in Christ, that He's more desirable than sin, that He freed us from sin, and that uncovered sin will be punished. But if Christ is my greatest affection, I have full confidence that God is constantly meeting my need. In and out of season, because I have Christ, I will not lose him because God is not an infidel. He is faithful. I can have confidence in all things because my affections are in the right place. The moment our affections turn to things other than Christ, we should have no confidence. Think about it. Fear Doubt and worry, fear, doubt, and worry are when we are afraid an affection might get hurt, an affection might get lost, or an affection might leave us empty. Think about this again. Think about your affections. When fear, doubt, and worry creep into your life, it's because you're afraid something that you desire might get hurt, Something you desire might get lost. Something you desire might leave you empty. 
Fear, doubt, and worry reveal misplaced affections. Because what is there to fear in Christ? What is there to worry about in Christ? What is there to doubt in Christ, right? How can I be fearful if my affection is in Christ? What could I possibly fear? What, what am I doubting if Christ is my affection? All God's promises find their yes in Him. Every word of God proves true. What would I worry about if Christ was my affection? I cannot lose Him. He's in total control of all things. He's working all things out for His glory and for my good. You see, now what affections have, or you see now that affections have everything to do with confidence. So what I want to do tonight, very briefly, honestly, is I want to show five dangerous affections that Paul has warned us about the last number of weeks in 2 Corinthians 3 through 6. These are important because Paul is saying here in chapter 6, which he ends up transitioning in chapter 7 onto a new thought. It's important because what Paul is saying here is that what I've just discussed to you will either thrust you forward in obedience and a life of ministry or it will strict you and will keep you from living by the Spirit in freedom. Okay? As I mentioned, the greatest threat to our life of faith and our ministry is misplaced affections. So let's look at dangerous affection number one. Lustful eyes. Now what I mean here is not lustful eyes in the sense of a man looking at a woman who's not his wife or a woman looking at a man who's not his wife. What I mean is someone who turns from the glory of the Lord who is the image of Christ and gazes at worthless idols with desire. The first dangerous affection is lustful eyes. When we, gazing at the beauty of Christ, decide to, decide to turn our gaze to a less glorious thing and desire it. This is adultery before God. This is lusting. And it is a dangerous affection. This is what Jesus says in John 3. Light has come into the world, but men loved what? Darkness, because their deeds were evil. Sinful men love darkness. They have a seeing problem. This is an affection of an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 4 showed us that this type of person is blind. Paul tells us that we all with unveiled face are now beholding the glory of Christ in chapter 3. In chapter 4, those who do not see this are veiled. It's a, it's a seeing issue. Remember, faith is a matter of seeing. It's the first thing we discussed. This is how all adultery begins. With a gaze. Once we take our eyes off of Christ, we begin to be tempted. And let no one say, James says, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's our gaze. The author of Hebrew tells us to keep our eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Paul was able to remain confident because his gaze was always on Christ. To live as Christ and die as gain. Now with unveiled face, behold the glory of God, the image of Christ being transformed from one image of glory to the next. Rest assured, people, that all sin, first and foremost, begins with a turning away. 
I mean, what is repentance? The renewing of the mind and turning away from sin back to God. Well, if you have to turn back to God to leave your sin, to sin, you're turning away from God. So the first issue is my eyes. In other words, if I'm gazing at Christ, I can't be tempted with something over here like pornography. My body's not just going to go and follow whatever. The eye is the lamp of the body. In order for me to be enticed by something else, my gaze has to shift. Now the moment my gaze shifts, my desires get in, my lips get wet, being along, and I'm thinking, and I'm looking back at God, I'm looking back at sin. He's going to forgive me. Nobody's going to know. And we're enticed. Satan is always working towards this. He's always trying to get us to look away from God. But before we make all the blame on Satan, you need to understand that your flesh always desires this. This is why sanctification is so important in the life of a believer. The more you become like Christ, the less you look away. But the flesh, until we're perfected in glorious bodies in heaven for all eternity, will always be prone to do this. Prone to wander. And it starts with the eyes. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 2 says that Satan captures people to do his will. This is amazing. What Paul tells Timothy to pray is to pray that these people who are captured by Satan would come to their senses. The word actually means to recover sobriety of the mind, to not be clouded. Think back to our text today. The word restricted, overcrowded, cloudy. The dangerous affection of lustful eyes is an issue of not seeing clearly. And when Paul tells Timothy to pray for these people, he says, Pray that come to their senses. Sight is a sense. Come to their senses and not be overcrowded and conflicted and cloudy in their judgment, but would gaze. And this sin, this dangerous affection of lustful eyes, leads us to all kinds of sin. Like number two, dangerous affection number two. Temporary satisfaction. I need you to keep in mind throughout this entire evening that these dangerous affections are dangerous in regards to your faith and your ministry. That's the, that's the point I'm trying to make here. So don't let that escape from your mind. Not only is it dangerous to your faith and your ministry, but it is also what will keep you from being sanctified and from having a confident faith. It will keep you from cultivating a biblical worldview. Because if you're not convinced and confident in your own faith because you're gazing at other affections, how on earth are you going to live in a practical way where you are a light shining like a lamp on a, on a table or a city on a hill. And this was the problem with Israel, who was to be a light to all the nations. But what were they called in the Old Testament? Adulterous. They had dangerous affections. They were totally confident in the wrong things. Misplaced affections, misplaced confidence. So dangerous next affection number two, temporary satisfaction. And this is really the lore of turning our gaze away from Christ. What happens is we want to be satisfied and gratified by something worldly. And why? Because the world tells us it feels good, tastes good, looks good, sees good, etc. We're living in a world that loves darkness because their deeds are evil. And they enjoy darkness. 
and you see them enjoying darkness. And the sad, sick truth, this makes no sense, is that sometimes it's easier to see happiness and joy in non-believers than in Christians. You've got most, you've, well, not most, you've got a lot of Christians today in America who wish they could just be in the world. They feel like, if I could just get my quick fix here, if I could just have my temporary satisfaction here, my affections are misplaced. It makes no sense for a Christian to see the glory of God and yet desire other things. It's idolatry. We've turned our gaze at looking now into pursuit of an idol. This is what leads to addictions. We find times to look away from Christ so that we can get a quick fix of something that we desire. However, have you noticed These quick fixes always lead us empty, full of shame, regret, and guilt. Ask any of like the 80% of the male population in America who's addicted to pornography how they feel after they give in. Regret, shame, hatred. Why am I doing this? And what happens for a believer? You come back to God desiring forgiveness. Why? Because it's temporary satisfaction. It's a misplaced affection. At the end, you go, I don't know why I did that. You, you, I know it's not going to give me what I know I need. I know that you tell me I'm not going to find the joy that I'm going to find there. And it's because we're prone to wander. The gaze, the lust of the world that is drawing us. What happens is these quick fixes are us being confused about joy and satisfaction. This is what Paul warned us about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He tells us to not turn away from the eternal glory for temporary fading glories. Remember the veil over Moses that was temporary and fading? It's the same thing. In chapter 4, he brings it home and says, you're a jar of clay. You're a tent. It's temporary. Don't seek to feed and satisfy the here and now at the expense of the forever. Paul is always saying that one of the remedies of not giving in to sin and keeping your eyes on Jesus is always remembering the eternal. It's a game changer. This is misplaced confidence, temporary satisfaction, because it means we're turning from the creator to the created. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. They've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The worshiping Creation, rather than the creator. God has created all things in such a way that we cannot be fully satisfied in anything other than him for eternity. Therefore, all idols will not satisfy. That's a promise. He does satisfy. And when we turn from Christ to give into idols, we are living in a way that we're not confident in the promise that he's given us. I don't believe that you can give me the satisfaction that this can give me. Or, I know you can, but you're going to forgive me anyways, and I want both. So let me give in and now come back to you. And there's consequences here. It's a dangerous affection. Because, as my dad would always say, it's just not that simple. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go, keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and it will cost you more than you ever thought you would have to give. I'll always remember my dad's wisdom there. Dave, sin will take you further than you want to go. Always. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever thought you'd have to give 
from the first look away. The dangerous affection of temporary satisfaction is one that, if it's not dealt with, will turn into an addiction, and then we become slaves to sin. Dangerous affection number three, worldly comfort. We've already discussed how Paul talks about jars and clay and earthly tents. But worldly comfort goes beyond a desire for a quick fix or temporary satisfaction. It's the next level of dangerous affection number two. Because temporary satisfaction deals more with idols that can lead to addiction and adultery. But worldly comfort is more about avoiding the affliction that comes with being a believer. And a desire to be able to live right now how you want to. This is where you look at the radical lifestyle of a believer, like Paul explains in our text tonight, and you look at all that Paul says, you're like, yeah, I don't want that life. I don't want the affliction, the hardship, the calamity, the beatings, the imprisonments, the riots, the labors, the sleepless nights, or the hunger. That is not a life of comfort. Our affections become that we want sleep. We want to be lazy. We want to be entertained. We want bigger houses. Nicer cars. This is a consequence of too much temporary satisfaction. When you linger in the world of quick fixes and temporary satisfaction with your gaze apart from Christ, you now begin to crave a comfortable, earthly lifestyle. And a believer or a person who knows the truth becomes convicted in their heart because they're going, I know I should be doing this, but now I'm desiring this way more. And it's because you are living now in a consistent separation from you and God. You've turned your gaze away from Christ for temporary satisfaction. You've pursued idols. And now you have addictions and you're feeling guilty and condemned because you know it's wrong. Now you feel like you're missing life. Therefore, in order to defend your comfort, because you've been gazing away from Christ for so long, you now cling to worldly comfort. You lose total focus of reality. You lose total focus of eternity. And now you live in such a way, listen, now you live in such a way in this earthly comfort as if heaven and hell don't exist. That's the danger of worldly comfort. It's living in such a way that you are acting like you don't believe heaven and hell exist. I say that because if if we believe heaven existed and that we'd be there for eternity, these afflictions that Paul talks about in chapter 6 right here, And the afflictions that he refers to in chapter 3 would be light and momentary and we would realize they're producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And if we believed in hell, we wouldn't live like infidels clinging to a comfort here only to be awaited by suffering and separation for all of eternity like the rich man in the gospel of Luke who begged for Abraham to put a drop on his tongue. We wouldn't be, or we'd be like Judas who exchanged his devotion to Jesus for money bags. Once we move from a quick gaze away from God into addictions and quick fixes and into a lifestyle of worldly comfort, we should know here that we have a huge affection problem and we've lost all confidence. This is danger zone. When you get to the point where your eyes have been gazing and desiring other things and you've been indulging in worldly activities and sin so that you can be satisfied, you can be selfish... And now when you're lingering and it's starting to affect your desires more so and you want to live in a comfortable lifestyle, you don't want to live according to biblical standards and biblical law, you're in a dangerous place. 
This can lead now to dangerous affection number four, which is people-pleasing. We mentioned this a little last week and something that Paul has alluded to numerous numerous times in this letter. Remember, he has no letter of recommendation. The Judaizers are calling him crazy. And yet he looks at his brethren and says, in our text tonight, that he has put no obstacle in anyone's way. That's what he says here in chapter 6. You see, Paul had no desire to seek the approval of people. As we stated last week, Galatians 1, if, if we were seeking the approval of man, we would not be a servant of Christ. This is now an even more dangerous place to be. Because this now means that all of our actions and decisions are based on how we view ourselves or how we want others to view us. We want quick fixes and worldly comfort and success so that we can be happy and others can think we're happy too. It's so foolish because what happens in this lifestyle and people pleasing, you always need more. You always fall short. It's exhausting. Nothing is ever satisfying. We need a bigger TV. We need a bigger home, a nicer couch, a newer phone, better clothes, a better looking body. All so that we can keep ourselves happy and so we can keep this front that we've built that people expect. But when we seek the approval of people like those in Corinth desire the approval of the Judaizers and Paul's calling them out about it, we become servants of people. And it is impossible to be a servant of people and to be a servant of Christ. At this point, Paul tells us, if this is your affection, you don't belong to Christ. You belong to people. This is where fear, worry, and doubt creep in the most. And it's actually here, before we get to point five, that the most fear can come upon Christians. And this is why. The question, am I really saved? Because if I was saved, I wouldn't be doing these things. And sometimes we can find ourselves in moments, right, if we're honest, or most people, or periods of wandering. If you found yourself, I've I've had these moments in my own life. I would say college was this. Probably my first two or three years here, too, is this. Whereas this gaze, I know, I've got experiences, I'm comfortable with my upbringing, I know all the right answers, I prayed a prayer, I got baptized, surely I'm good. Right? Right? But now, I'm like, yeah, but I know all that what he says, but it doesn't really like stir my heart and soul. I don't have like this passion to jump and sing when I sing a song about God forgiving me. I don't like wake up and just get tearful about the grace of God. I don't feel this connection when I pray. I love sin. I'm addicted to certain kinds of sins. I've asked God to deliver me from them. I'm not. I don't really read the Bible a lot. I pray most times for a meal, sometimes before I go to bed. I love comfort. I have this huge battle of desiring the things of God or just wanting to be accepted by people and wanting to fit in and wanting to be comfortable. And we could go, am I saved? I want to approach this question two ways. Ready? Number one, maybe you're not. Number two, maybe you are. 
We've solved it. (laughs) But let's break it down. Maybe you're not. And God in his grace is waking you up, right? And calling you to repent and turn away from your sin and come back to God. I'll explain that in a second. Or maybe you are, and what you need to do is you need to repent. You need to turn away from your sin. You need to come back to Christ. What happens is some people get paralyzed in this am I saved? And they don't know what to do. Whether you're saved or not saved, the answer is the same thing. Run after Christ. Peter says, be all the more diligent to confirm your election and your calling, brothers. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. Run after Christ with all that you have. Here's the reality. If you believe the word of God, when you find yourself in a position in your life where you're going, am I saved? Why am I still living this way? Why am I not delighting in God? What you need to do is preach the gospel to yourself and plead that the Holy Spirit of God would change your affections. Your issue here is affections. You are delighting in yourself. You're delighting in the world. You are seeking approval from people. You're finding your self-worth from people. And you are crippled. You want to know why you're crippled here? You haven't found yourself to be accepted by God and rested in that. That's what it is. If I'm crippled in this sphere, I don't know my identity in Christ or I don't have an identity in Christ yet. This is why I say this is so important. Because the things of this world don't satisfy. They leave you empty on purpose to point you to your maker. And so when you're empty, when you're confused, when you're discouraged, you've got to realize, I've got misplaced affections. And you what? You ready for this? We began with this. I have no confidence. The purpose of tonight, and what we talked about for 14 weeks, is building a confident faith. We discussed for, or for, uh, we began the beginning talking how affections and confidence goes hand in hand. When you are living in sin... You lack a confidence of whether or not you're saved and whether or not you really have faith because your affections are misplaced. This is why right affections engage, increase, and strengthen your confidence. And this is why we can't think the answer is mustering up faith. Duty, doing better, stopping doing this and doing this. It's not a duty issue. I preached this the first two weeks this year that I preached in January. It's not duty, it's delight. You don't muster up faith to overcome this. You change your sight. Because just as the first issue in falling into sin is turning away from Christ, the first way to turn away from sin and overcome sin is turning back to Christ. It's the object of our faith that saves us. You have no confidence if the object of your confidence in your faith is anything but Christ. You should worry, you should fear, you should have doubt. But if you gaze at Christ and your affection is Christ and, and godly things, you can have confidence that even in the midst of sin and turning away, God is working in you, He's keeping you, He's saving you. Don't be crippled in your lack of confidence. Realize you have misplaced affections and pray that God would renew your mind. Diligently. One more rabbit trail and then I'll get back to number five and we'll be done. That doesn't mean you don't work at it. Right? It is God who works in us. 
But for me personally, many of you know the testimony, I had to bear down and say, enough is enough. I haven't read the Bible consistently ever. I'm not sure that I've ever had a month at this point of reading the Bible every single day. And I said, enough is enough. I don't delight in him. I'm going to be diligent, disciplined. And I prayed without ceasing. And I read the word of God and craved it every single day. Don't think that the answer is, I'm going to come to church for a month. I'm going to try to read a devotional every day in the morning. I'm going to pray before I go to bed. And then the rest of the time, I'm just going to live according to my same affections that got me in this place in the first place. You have to start being proactive about your affections. You've got to be disciplined. You've got to be diligent. This is why Paul says, pray without ceasing. This is why it makes no sense to wake up in the morning and say, God, please keep me from sin today, and then go live as you want. You've got to pray your your fifth step in. God, I already want to forget what I just prayed, so please continue to be with me. Your next step, and all of a sudden the milk is two days past. God, I want to be mad at my wife right now for not getting more milk. Please forgive me and help me to rest in your grace and change my affections. You're going to be facing sin every day, and every step is either closer to the Lord or further away. Misplaced affections is where we get our lack of confidence. And dangerous affection, number five, as we close. Seeking my kingdom. Uh, The number one person I would recommend for this type of deep diving the truth is Paul David Tripp. He explains this the best, in my opinion. You read really any of his books, and he'll talk about it in some way. Um, This is the result of everything we've discussed. Because at the end of the day, when we turn away from God and we don't rest in his sovereignty and we don't have confidence in him, what happens is we desire to be in control of our life and we desire to do as we please because we're obsessed with ourselves. Everybody agree? We're obsessed with ourselves. Even the most insecure person is insecure because they're obsessed with themselves. We're We answer to ourselves. We create our own laws. We create our own expectations. We want to be the sovereign of our own life. We want to be in control. We want to determine what is right and what is wrong. We look at Paul's text tonight and say, you're wrong, Paul. You cannot rejoice if you're sorrowful, Paul. You're not able to make many rich if you're poor, Paul. You don't have everything if you have nothing, Paul, that doesn't make sense. Which, from a worldly standpoint, having nothing yet possessing everything really doesn't make any sense. With biblical faith, you understand that. Because once we turn our gaze away from Christ and desire quick fixes, we begin to pursue idols and build addictions. Then we end up desiring comfort, and so we make a full-fledged pursuit of earthly comfort. Then we so desire for people to think well of us that we become people-pleasers. But even people-pleasing doesn't satisfy us and is an unending desire that cannot be quenched. So finally we turn to the most damning position of all. I'll just be my own God. And I'll just totally live for myself. Now, most people would probably tremble to admit such a thing, but how would you define a person living like this? You see, number four, people pleasing makes everybody else a God, and that's exhausting. So, when you get exhausted, you go, you know what? I'm going to be my own God. Now you're in control. You make the rules, you make the laws, you can get angry when you want, you can be justified in all of these things, but these are dangerous and foolish affections. Paul says that this is what is restricting your life of faith and your ministry. 
This is what is restricting your confidence. You don't have a confident faith? I, I, I'm not... By the way, you could spend 14 weeks listening to a much more qualified, better pastor. But if you look at what we've discussed for 14 weeks, and you cannot have a confident faith tonight when you leave, what you need to know is the issue is your affections. You've become God of your own life. You're rejecting stuff that is so stinking true and smacking you in the face because you just love darkness. You have not looked at Christ and found Him to be glorious in the ultimate satisfaction. This is why the greatest danger is not on education. It's not government. It's not upbringing. It's not the devil. It's why we said the beginning. The greatest danger to faith, to confidence, to ministry is affections. Let me ask you a question. A few of them. Can you have confidence that the world will fulfill your affections when you take your gaze off of Christ? Does anybody, don't answer this out loud, like, or raising hand or anything. Because if you do, I want to talk to you afterwards. Seriously. And not in a damning way. I want to know what you know that I don't know. Can you have confidence that the world is going to meet your every desire and affection? Can you have confidence that idols will fulfill your affections? Can you have confidence that the world will give you more comfort than God? Can you have confidence that people will be more gracious and faithful to you than God will? Can you have confidence that when you seek your own kingdom, you can have full trust that you will fulfill your deepest affections? If the first four affections are all about seeking somebody else to desire them and it's not working or to fulfill them. I want to make one, one thing certain before we leave, though, and talk just very briefly about what to expect next week. God is not against affections or satisfaction, and he is not against your affections or your satisfaction. God created joy and longing and desires and affections. God's against sinful affections. See, the problem is not that we have too great a desire to be satisfied. The answer to our problem is not to be against our own joy, but rather even more intense about it. C.S. Lewis, his famous quote, says it best. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half Hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy, infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's like at Christmas. In fact, I'll get to experience this probably next year when Charlotte turns one. But for those of you little kids or have had little kids, Right? I have little nieces and nephews. What happens? You spend like $30 on getting like this awesome dinosaur, right? And you wrap it up and it like makes noises. And what happens? What do they love about the present? The box. (laughs) It's like, 
why did I spend $30 on a dinosaur? I literally should have gone to Safeway and said, hey, can I have your milk box container before you throw it out? Wrap it up in a present and give it to the kid. And yet they have this amazing dinosaur that's 3D and makes noises and sounds. Now, this is a playful way. But as ignorant as that is, and they're innocent in it, we are not innocent in it. And we are ignorant that God has given us infinite joy and we play around with these boxes. You know what the box is? Creation. It's Romans 1. We've now worshipped created things, idols, rather than the Creator. And the box contains the gift. Creation reveals the glory of God. Therefore, all things point that our greatest joy and satisfaction is in Christ. I'm reminded of 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. John says this, And now, little children, abide in Him. Abide in Him. Why? So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. In other words, if you abide in Him, you will have confidence. And if you do not, you will have no confidence and you will shrink in shame. So that is our final challenge. Abide in Christ and you will bear much fruit. And at that point, you will have not received the grace of God in vain. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Cling to His Word. Remind yourself that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. Remind yourself that God is faithful and we only have confidence in Him. Remind yourself that the biggest danger to your ministry will be your misplaced affections. So don't muster up more faith. Faith is not of works. Look to the object of your faith, Jesus. And remember the doxology at the end of Jude that says this. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Like we've been doing the last few weeks, we're going to end with a response song. I'll ask the band to come up now. And while they're coming, before we pray over tonight's message and then close with a response in song, next week we deal with a very important question. I'd encourage you guys to come, and I'm going to tell you why, and I'd encourage you guys, for those who are going to be coming next, next semester, to come, because this next week is very important to laying some groundwork. The question next week is, is the Bible sufficient for all things in life? In other words, should all of my decisions be submissive to the Word of God? Aren't there gray areas in Scripture? Doesn't the Bible not speak on certain subjects or aspects? Is there ever a part of our life that should be decided, acted upon, or any conviction arise apart from the Word of God? And this is crucial to our topic of cultivating a biblical worldview. Okay?